Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Ready or not. Welcome back, one and all, to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast, where we experiment in conversation. Uh, coming at you again solo this time around, uh, do a little bit of monologuing for you. This is a bit of a different episode. Um, I, I promised everybody a couple more episodes of Whitehead, uh, and I have a couple. Um, they're not ready yet, so um, so I'm going to do some other stuff. But really, that's for me. I, I wanted to do some other stuff um, we did plenty of whitehead recently, so um, I'll save the rest for a little bit later, build some anticipation. Uh, in the meantime, something a little bit unusual happened. I think it's unusual. Maybe it's not. Maybe you will disagree with me. So I'll tell you the story, and you tell me what you think. Um, the reason it's significant to me is because, as you guys know, I'm a big fan of Jordan Peterson. Um, I have there's a deep interest in psychology and religion, and so Peterson's right up my alley. One of the things that, uh, one of the stories that Jordan tells, and he's told many times, is a story about his little nephew. And so if you guys are familiar at all with Jordan Peterson, he talks a lot about the mysteries of the unconscious, um, what human psychology is like, what personality is like. And he talks about ways in which psychology and religion overlap. Uh, I've said this many times you guys probably already know, but even the word spirit is something that's used in a psychological context uh, as well as a religious context. And so the word psyche that you hear from psychologists really just means spirit. And so there's this built-in idea of an invisible or a, um, a piece of your reality that is unaccessible to you, at least in the way the world is accessible and the way that you're consciousness is accessible to you, something that we call the unconscious. And it's a very strange thing because it's something that seems to be shared by all human beings. It's something that Jordan will call transpersonal. So not just the unconscious. Everybody has access to something we call the unconscious that we don't exactly understand. Um, but it's not clear that it's different between human beings, that there's this idea of a of a collective unconscious that Carl Jung talked about. And it may very well be that this unconscious piece of our existence is something that we share in common with everybody else. It's not to say that the content of your unconscious is identical to everybody else, but that the source of your unconscious is. And it's very strange. you know. Uh, I've said this many times as well, that we don't really know where our ideas come from. We're not conscious, let's say, of the cognitive processes involved with deep memory and associations and things that allow us to come up with ah ideas, epiphanies, things like that. Um, even more so, 
well, shit, even the words that are coming out of my mouth right now, totally ad-libbed, where is this coming from? It's very, very hard to understand. But then there's things like dreams, very hard to understand where they come from. Fantasies, very hard to understand where they come from. Um, and then creative endeavors. You know, you write a music, a piece of music, you write a story, you know, a short story that you come up with from your imagination. Where does that come from? It's not really clear where that comes from. And scientific-minded people will give you all sorts of explanations about how, um, you know, those associations already exist in your in your memory system, and you know you're you're pulling these associations randomly and, and all sorts of things. So there's this idea that dreams and unconscious fantasies are random, and there's some support for that idea. Think about a crazy dream you've had that didn't seem to have any meaning for you. It seemed very freaking random, didn't it? All the things that happened, the scenes that rolled into new scenes and the characters that come and go, and it's very strange and not inconsistent and random. Um, so there's that aspect, and there's an argument to be made for it. On the other side of that, there's uh, kind of the polar opposite idea that um, you might actually get wisdom from a dream. You might actually... You might actually be able to work through some kind of trauma that you have in a fantasy or in a dream. And so if they're useful, if they're meaningful, and if they have information, if the unconscious delivers for you information that you didn't have on your own or that you weren't conscious of, um, then it gets a little bit mystical and it gets a little bit weird. Is it random? How can it be random when, you know, I was able to take this solution from my dream or from my fantasy and implement it in the world and have it work? So there's lots of interesting stuff about this. And so one of the things, one of the stories that Jordan will tell is a story about his nephew, who at the time was very young. I'm not sure exactly the age, but I'm guessing five years or younger. So maybe three to five years old. And they're sitting around the dinner table and they're having a conversation and the kid is telling Jordan and his family about this nightmare that he keeps having that's, you know, very, very scary for him. It's making it hard for him to fall asleep, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so Jordan asks his nephew to tell him what the nightmare is. And he proceeds to tell the story about how there's a dragon very terrifying dragon and he's very scared of it in the dream but it's not just the dragon that's the problem it's not just the fire breathing you know monster that happens to be there it's worse than that because the dragon keeps burping up monsters there's these little short hairy creatures that are covered in black slime something like that so you got this terrible fire-breathing dragon who keeps burping up monsters. The more he burps, the more monsters there are, and the more scared and overwhelmed the kid gets in his nightmare. So it's pretty pretty terrifying. If you can put some you know fantasy images together to, to tell that story to yourself, and imagine you're four or five years old, it's a terrifying dream. But it was a serious issue for the boy. So you know, Jordan, being a psychologist, he says to him, "What?" could you do in the dream to make this better? You know, was there something that you can do? He asks the, the boy what he could do. And Jordan says, you know, that the reason he suggested it, and you can see that asking the question is suggestive, because what does it suggest? What does it imply? It implies that the boy could do something. So it's trying to empower him, thinking that when he's in this dream and he's scared, that he might actually be able to do something in the dream to resolve, you know, the chaos, the, 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 the terror, and all of that. 
So he kind of plants that idea subconsciously. And after um, this nightmare continues, um, the boy, he actually puts this idea in practice in the dream. So rather than just being scared and terrified, he decides in the dream he'll take action, he'll do something. And um, what he tells Jordan that he can do, because again, he's asking him, what can you do? He says, well, I'll go around all of these monsters that are being burped up by the dragon. And I'm going to go right to the source. I'm going to go right to the dragon. And that's where I'm going to begin. And what I'll do, and this is, again, I'm paraphrasing for the boy here, but he says, what I'll do is I'll cut out the firebox from the dragon's throat. So the boy imagines that that there's some kind of box in the dragon that's responsible for him breathing fire, his ability to breathe fire. And the boy is going to cut that out because it does two things. It removes the danger from the dragon. And it also provides the boy with a weapon, right? So he says, I'll cut the firebox out of the dragon and use it against the monsters. So the hair stands up on my arms a little bit. Just the idea that this idea would occur to the boy. Um, This is a boy that doesn't have a lot of life experience. He hasn't faced a lot of challenges. He doesn't know that there's something that can be gained by figuring out how to overcome challenges. And yet... He tells that story about cutting out the firebox and using it, you know, harnessing it for his own ends. And that's a very deep psychological truth that you learn through experience, that you learn through trial and error, through failing and, and getting, you know, picking yourself back up and all that sort of thing. And, and this little boy seems to know it, even though he doesn't have the life experience that would give him a reason to know it. And this, so it's strange. Is there something in this dream that he's being allowed to know before he's earned it, before he's earned that knowledge, is strange. Where does that come from? And Jordan, he responds that way. He's like, this is absolutely amazing. The symbolism that played out in his nephew's, you know, dreaming mind. The narrative of the dream laid out so many true and hard-won facts of the human experience. You know, you have to face the source of chaos and disorder in your life head on. You have to do it voluntarily. Otherwise, you're just running and hiding all the time. You have to live your life. You have to be able to face challenges and chaos um, voluntarily. And that there's something valuable to be won if you do so. Now, further still, that there's uh, this valuable thing that can be won can be harnessed and used. Like that thing grants you power. So you can imagine, you know, whatever it is, maybe your uh, first heartbreak that you had, and we all have a powerful memory about that. Let's say your first heartbreak you had, it taught you something. It taught you that you can survive something even that, that terrible, something even that emotionally damaging. You can survive that. And it, had, it didn't damage you. It made you wiser. Now you know that's possible. Now you know what mistakes not to make in the next romantic endeavor. There's something valuable that comes out of that suffering. And in the dream, the boy faces his fear head on, voluntarily. He went where he least wanted to go, into the dragon's lair, and he discovered a treasure there. This is the firebox and the power of the firebox, right? And he now possesses that power. The boy now now harnesses this thing that he was once afraid of and now belongs to him. And the psychological meaning in that is, is clear. When challenges come your way, 
it is possible to rise to the occasion, to face danger and uncertainty, and to triumph. But win or lose, these encounters yield gifts, the gift of learning, of identifying our weaknesses, the gift of maturing as we incorporate new experiences into our repertoire, the gift of self-formation. But just how did a grade school age kid know this? How was his unconscious fantasy able to articulate this to him when he hadn't lived enough to have learned that hardships and challenges constitute opportunities as much as dangers? So what kind of mystery is the unconscious that would communicate such a thing to a boy in his dreams? And what kind of creature are we that we have access to such a thing as the unconscious? So I tell you that story because it's an interesting story to me, but it wasn't interesting enough to bring to you on the podcast until my daughter threw something at me that eerily reminded me of this. So I'll tell you, my oldest daughter is six years old. She finished kindergarten, right? She, she has some life experience, but not a lot. We, we do a good job as parents of, of sheltering her from the worst things, you know, as you do. And, uh, you know, she's an imaginative, imaginative child. She, we're driving in the car, and she's just talking, talking, talking. She likes to, if she gets excited about an idea or enamored by an idea, she can talk about it a million miles a minute all day long. It's very adorable. And um, she started talking to me about fairies, and I thought that was interesting. You know, maybe fairies is not an idea that she invented. She saw it in a cartoon. She saw it, you know, on a commercial, whatever. She she knows about the idea of fairies, or she's read about them in stories. So she's she's talking about fairies, um, and she, you know, she's sort of ranting about it, exploring the idea, just kind of like uh, spitballing. Really, she's just talking like like she's telling me facts about fairies. And the facts, she's just sort of making them up as she goes along. It's this imaginative, creative thing that she's doing. And she lands on the idea that fairies are responsible for natural phenomena. She's in, she's in the backseat. She's telling me there's a fairy that's responsible for the rain. There's a fairy that's responsible for um, the sun, the sunshine or, you know, the, the rivers or whatever. This kind of a thing. Um, the clouds, that kind of thing. And so she's telling me that there's fairies that are responsible for these different natural phenomena. And I thought that was cute. Um, And then she's telling me that each of these fairies has a a name, and she's telling me what their names are. And this isn't unusual, you know, like she names all of her dolls and all that kind of thing. So she's telling me that there's fairies and that the fairy that is responsible for the sunshine, her name is this, and the fairy that's responsible for the clouds, her name is this. And, uh, you know, it's adorable. Um, so then I tell her, I say, well, what about, what about the fairy of volcanoes? There must be a fairy of volcanoes if there's fairies for all these other things. And I said, what's, what's that fairy's name? And she says, you know, without hesitation, she's like, that fairy's name is Amber. And then she gets quiet for a little bit and you can just tell she's staring out the window. She's thinking, thinking, thinking. And then she says some, (laughs) something I did not expect her to say. She said, She said, there's a fairy responsible for God. 
And then she says, and then God is responsible for all the rest of the fairies that are responsible for nature. I was like, oh my God. So she's provided this whole kind of cosmology here about, you know, fairy on top somehow creates God. God creates the other fairies. The other fairies are then these supernatural forces that create all of, all of you know, the forces of nature. And this is the model that she's come up with just, just instantly. So I asked her the next question that you would think. I said, oh, there's a fairy responsible for God is there. What's that fairy's name? And she looks at me and she says, Sophia. And the hair stands up on my arms. So I'm not going to... I'm struggling to figure out where to put in the punchline here, but Sophia is significant. So I want to tell you about a couple things in this story that struck me as strange. Her fantasy, thinking about fairies, in her mind that's some sort of invisible um, beings that are responsible or behind the, ne- the, the phenomena of, of nature, the things that she doesn't understand um, that, that, that make up the natural world. So that idea by itself seems to have come to her from her unconscious. It seems to have just come to her. And it's one of the oldest religious ideas in the world. So it's no surprise. I mean, you you think about tribal religions like the types of religious traditions that Native Americans practiced or sub-Saharan African tribes practice, um, tribes in uh, Southeast Asia, in Australia, you know, the aboriginals, that kind of thing. What kind of religion did they all have? They had religions that saw the world as imbued by spirits. Shinto in Japan is another example of this. You see it all over the world. Nature is represented by spirits and spiritual forces, and those spiritual forces can be communed with. You can ask them for favors. They can give you things. Um, you know, you can you can negotiate with them. Um, you know, that sort of thing. This is an idea called animism. And it's one of the oldest religious traditions known to man. And here you have my child, six years old, coming up with this idea of spirits, fairies, supernatural beings that exist as the behind and, and these natural phenomena. And the natural phenomena are their manifestations in the material world. This is animism. And my daughter's just come up with it from her unconscious, from her imagination. A couple other things. When when I suggested to her that there must be a fairy of volcanoes, since she's telling me there's fairies of all these other things, and I ask what that fairy's name is, and she says amber. And I'm I'm just struck with the idea that an amber, the stone, it's a fiery orange color. You know, amber is a beautiful for exactly those reasons. What are those reasons? They look like fire. It looks like lava. Right, And this is the name she gives to the volcano fairy. I thought that was interesting. You can see the associations and the connections there. Whether she's conscious of them, I don't know. Whether this is a coincidence, I don't know. But the facts remain. And then the strangest thing here, the thing that I attach to, the thing that made me want to write this uh, podcast at all and bring this to you, is when she comes up all on her own with the idea that there is a fairy responsible for God. 
So she knows very little about God at this point. She's been to church. Um, she uh, she knows probably more about Jesus than she know, understands the idea of God. Um, but she but she proposes to me that there's a fairy responsible for God, and that 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 God then creates the rest of the fairies that do the rest of the work of of nature. So the idea that a fairy or a supernatural force exists above God and is responsible for creating God is a deep, deep religious idea. And it blew my mind. So there's an idea that goes back to the ancient Greeks, but it's, but it's also seen in early Christianity quite a lot among the Gnostic groups. This idea that, that there is a God that created God. So the God that we think of as God is not actually the high God. It's the only God that we know about. The high God is this mystery. But the, this phony God that's responsible for creating the cosmos, that's called the Demiurge. There's a name for this, this character. So the fairy, in this case, that creates God, that's, that's, really, that's really God. That's the high God that, that creates God. And God then goes on to create the rest of the universe. So in the Gnostic, early Christian Gnostic movement, they saw the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament as different. And it doesn't take a lot to understand. The God of the New Testament, you know, Jesus, let's say, is, is the God that sacrifices his life for his creation, the God that washes the feet of his disciples. That's a very humble God. The God of the Old Testament, on the other hand, is a God of fire and brimstone, is a God of law and order is a god of you know uh raining down brimstone on sodom and gomorrah and and that sort of thing so you can see that the idea of 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 the old testament god being the vengeful god and the new testament god being the the, you know the much the much softer um uh you know uh, empathetic sort of a sort of a god um they don't seem commensurate with one another they don't seem like the same god and so these early Christians believed that the God of the Old Testament is false. The God of the New Testament is the real, real God. And so what that, what that real God did was created a God, the Demiurge, that would do his work for him, that would go on and create the cosmos. And this allows the high God to just fade off into the mist, never to be seen again. And you see that idea in very ancient primitive religions, in sub-Saharan Africa in particular. They, they often will have a name for a god who is the primordial god, the high god, the god that's that, you know, um, the high god, for lack of a better phrase, and, you know, beat, beat a dead horse. But, um, you, you know, they'll recognize that this god exists. They have a name for the god, but they do not worship that god. They don't even really ever speak that God's name. And the reason is that they see, um, in their myth, you know, mythological tradition, they see God as having created the cosmos and disappeared. God, God, that God, is not available to human beings. It's not something that you can commune with or sacrifice to or worship. There's all these lesser gods and spirits on earth you know, that are associated with nature and, human, and living creatures and so forth. Those things you can commune with. Those things you can negotiate with. But the high God, he's so distant from you, 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 you know, there's no point of even worshiping. There's no point of even acknowledging that God. 
And so this is a very deeply held religious belief that goes back to, you know, prehistoric tribal religion. It goes, it, it's, it's epitomized in this early Gnostic form of Christianity that God is a false god, and the worshipers of God are worshiping a false god because they don't know that there's this higher god, that there's this mystery that's hidden from us. The god that we worship is the demiurge and is, isn't really god. And so these Gnostic groups um, in the early Christian days believed that they were special, that they were the people that knew this divine truth, this hidden knowledge. That's what Gnosis means, by the way, hidden knowledge, that they know the, the truth of the real God. And so they're the, they're the select group that are worshiping the real God. They're the ones that are going to get saved and everyone else is going to be damned. That, that was their idea. But this all boils down to the demiurge, that the God we worship, the God that we think is God, the one that's responsible for creation of the cosmos, is more of a worker bee than the real divinity. And my six-year-old daughter, talking about the fairy that makes God, is hitting on this idea that there's a God behind God, <laughs> something like that. And it, and it's it literally is mind-blowing but not so mind-blowing as the name she gives this fairy. The fairy, the spirit that makes God, her name is Sophia. It's not a, it's not a man, it's not a genderless you know, spirit, it's a, a female fairy named Sophia. So why is that so interesting? So to answer that question for you, I have to tell you a little bit more. And I think the best place to do this, to be, the best place to talk about Sophia is to remind you or ask you about something you probably know. Who remembers The Da Vinci Code? Who remembers Dan Brown's book and the blockbuster movie, The Da Vinci Code? Hopefully most of you do. It's huge in its day. And controversial, right? Spicy in its day, The Da Vinci Code. Why? Do you remember what it was about? The main theme, I mean? The idea that Jesus had a wife and that the divine bloodline of the incarnation of God lives on secretly among us. You know, some stranger you bump into in the street could be, you know, Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-granddaughter or something. This is the story of the Da Vinci Code. Jesus had a wife and so also a children or child. And so this divine bloodline, you know, the DNA of God that exists in Jesus, that just continues on in the earth somewhere among many people, and we don't know who, the, who they are, who they might be, or what that means. So it's a very intriguing idea. That's why Dan Brown sold lots of copies of the book. But why such emphasis on the chalice? You remember this? He talked about the blade and the chalice. The blade represents, really, it's, it's, a, it's a phallic symbol. The blade represents a penis. The chalice represents a vagina. So you've got the masculine symbol and the feminine symbol. And all this attentions on Mary Magdalene as the feminine, you know, component here of this of this relationship with Jesus, and the chalice is the symbol of the feminine, and so we see this coming up over and over in the Da Vinci Code. Why such emphasis on the chalice? Why such emphasis on the feminine? Now, certainly, Mary Magdalene wasn't the divine feminine that Dan Brown talks about in that book. We heard we heard a bunch about that in the book, the divine feminine. As much as maybe she was the mother of Jesus' child, as much as that might be the case, Mary was an ordinary mortal like you or I. 
not even an immaculate conception to her credit, as of course the Catholics attribute to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the rest of Christendom attributes to Jesus himself. They, They had divine births so that we know they're special. Mary Magdalene didn't. So what's the deal? What did Dan Brown mean by the divine feminine? And where did he ever get such an idea? Okay, firstly, it's important to recognize that the divine in all of its historical representations has always been imagined both as female and as male, as feminine and as masculine. And in some cases, both simultaneously. Goddesses are as prevalent as gods in the classical world. In fact, all of the primary gods of the ancient world were paired with consort deities. They all had a divine spouse. So each divine spouse mirrored the god and reflected its feminine attributes. So you have the masculine and the feminine, which is usually a husband and wife sort of pairing, the god and the goddess. They all have different qualities, different characteristics. But really, the truth of them is that they are one thing. They're this Ouroboros. They're the combination of Tiamat and Apsu, as as we talk about from the Sumerian story. And so the representation of this is as a goddess and a god that, that have different qualities, the feminine and the masculine qualities. But in truth, the god, the deity, is all of those qualities together. And that's why they're paired up like husband and wife. For every Zeus, there was a Hera. For every Apsu, a Tiamat. For every Osiris and Isis. It was as though the divine masculine power was incomplete unless united with its feminine half, and vice versa. Further still, the oldest representations of the divine that survive from antiquity, the Paleolithic Venus figurines, as a case in point, were female. So if you go and you look up the Venus of Brassempoi or the Venus of Villendorf, you see these very ancient statues, 20,000, 30,000 years old, and they're goddess figurines in the, in the shape of a female. They're the absolute oldest religious imagery that we have. So God may, may very well have been female before it was ever imagined as male. And given the centrality of, of womanhood, in birth and creation, that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, you would, see, you would see females giving birth to something new. You would imagine how something can be born from nothing, how the cosmos must have been born once upon a time. So the female and the feminine aspect gets linked to the idea of creation, and so the idea of God makes perfect sense to me. But this begs the question, where did the goddesses go? Today, in our Judeo-Christian world, where is God's other half? What have we done to her? In modern Christianity, the divine feminine has become the church. In Catholic uh, dogma, the church is called the bride of Christ. So that's the feminine portion here. But was it present in the faith before in some other form? by some other name? Was the divine feminine present in Judaism that gave birth to Christianity? Was it present in the traditions that led up to Judaism? And does any of this relate back to my daughter's fantasy about fairies? 
Let's find out. All right, so first I want to tell you about a goddess. Her name is Asherah. Evidence of her worship goes back to 2000 BC. Goes back a very, very long way. She was one of the great goddesses of the Canaanite pantheon. So you, you can think about the ancient Middle East, the Levant, that area. Um, there was lots of different groups of people there. Many of them were Semitic people like the Jews. They all had uh, polytheistic religions where they worshipped many gods and goddesses. And Asherah was one of the key primary goddesses, one of the very oldest and most powerful goddesses. Her primary role was that of a, the mother goddess. So she's connected to those Venus figurines I was telling you about, connected to birth um, the, uh, and fecundity and the, and the crops and all of that sort of thing. And she was associated with sacred trees, which is an association that's also found in the Israelite tradition. Right, the, the sacred tree. We have Eve in the garden with, with the tree of life and the tree of knowledge. You can see that symbolism there. The great, the, our great and original mother, Eve, is associated with these this sacred tree or trees, as was Asherah. Asherah was one of these spouses of one of these great gods. She was the consort to the god El. El is interesting because it does appear in the Bible, by the way. The God of, of Israel was called El, uh, also called Yahweh. Um, so El actually means God. And it was used as a proper name for a lot of these Semitic religions of, of ancient times. It, to, to mean not just God, but the great God, or the king of the gods, the high God. And Asherah was the wife of the high God. Asherah and El, the great God and the great goddess. And Asherah is important because she's linked to the Mesopotamian goddess Ishtar. Asherah and Ishtar. They're, you know, it's just like, um, 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 I'm trying to think of an example here. Uh, like, well, you can, you can look at a, high, at a high god like uh, Zeus. And you can look at a high god like Odin or Thor from, let's say, Viking mythology and start making... Um, connections in, in, in terms of the similarities between them. And it doesn't take long to realize that many of these gods uh, and goddesses have common origins. Maybe they're linked either because they came from an earlier goddess or god, or because they, they share a lot of the same qualities. And it's just like they're different only by the names they're called, because the people were different, had different languages, that kind of thing. But Ishtar goes back deep into our history. Ishtar goes back to the early days of civilization, and she was called the Queen of Heaven, also a goddess of fertility, also a mother goddess and a goddess of war. But she was the Queen of Heaven. Across from who? The King of Heaven, the great God. The Bible actually mentions Asherah by name, which I find interesting. Not in a way you, that you would expect. Deuteronomy talks about Yahweh commanding the destruction of her shrines. So the Jews were to destroy the shrines to Asherah. And that's interesting because there are biblical scholars that believe at one time Asherah was worshipped as the consort of Yahweh. So whether, whether we're talking about El and Asherah or Yahweh and Asherah, both of those names, El and Yahweh, are used in the Bible to describe God. 
and there's inscriptions that they found uh, that go back to the 8th century BC in the northern Sinai desert. There's more than one, but the inscriptions say Yahweh and his Asherah, God and his wife, God and his goddess. So clearly, going back to at least the 8th century BC, probably earlier on, probably before the Israelites um, you know, were, were quote-unquote Jewish, that this God, El, or Yahweh, that they worshipped was associated with a female counterpart or had a female you know, aspect, Asherah. So this is all pre-Judaism. But you can see the connections even to our Judeo-Christian tradition today. Asherah is the divine feminine, the great goddess that shows us the feminine qualities and aspects of what we call the divine. And we see more of this from Judaism, actually. In the Middle Ages, when Kabbalah, when mystical Kabbalah became a thing, in the 12th century AD, there's this Jewish word, Shekinah. I probably mispronounced that. And Shekinah, it, like, like many languages, words have, they're gendered, right? Words are either uh, masculine or feminine. Shekinah is a feminine word. And you know, and it, the Jews believed that this this word represented uh, the dwelling place of the divine. So it was associated with worship. Like if you went to the tabernacle, or if you went to the temple in Jerusalem, and you were um, and you were uh, sacrificing to God or praying to God, um, Shekinah was said to be there with you or there in the temple, the presence of God, something like that. So as a result, it's also been connected to the Holy Spirit from, from the Christian tradition that this, that this Shekinah, this feminine word that's used to describe the Spirit of God or the dwelling place of God, it's actually connected to this idea of the Holy Spirit from the Trinity. There's a famous Kabbalah scholar named Gershom Sholem who said that the divine, the feminine divine presence, the Shekinah, distinguishes the Kabbalistic literature from earlier Jewish literature. So Shekinah as, an, as, an, uh, as a word and as an idea existed in Judaism from the, from the very beginning, but it wasn't until this mystical Kabbalah came out in the Middle Ages that it starts taking a different form. The divine and feminine is sort of rearing its ugly head, if that's, if that's, you know, if that's kosher to say. Um, in the imagery of Kabbalah, the Shekinah is the most female of the Sephirah, Sephirah, I like to think of as angels, but really they are the divine emanations of God. That's, what, that's what's meant by Sephirah in the Kabbalah. And so there's this harmonious relationship between the female Shekinah and the other Sephirah, the other emanations of God. And they have to balance each other out. The feminine and the masculine have to balance each other out. And this this not only allows the world to be created, but it allows the creation to be sustained. You kind of have a Brahma-Vishnu thing going on here. The creator, Brahma, the preserver, uh, Vishnu, that kind of thing. So, you, you know, again, I'm using Hindu uh, analogies, but you can see that that's kind of what's, what's present. But you can also see it in the yin and the yang from Taoism. The feminine and the masculine. The energies balancing each other and the balance being very important important for being, important for order, important for the creation of the cosmos. And that brings me to Sophia. Remember, my daughter asked, 
or she told me rather, that the fairy responsible for God, her name is Sophia. So we talked about Asherah, we talked about Shekinah, but these are words that are describing a missing, hidden, feminine expression of God, of the divine. And it just so happens that those words make it into Christianity, but we don't call her Asherah or Shekinah. The Christians called her Sophia. If you're not familiar, I mean, I probably know a Sophia, but the word Sophia is, uh, is, uh, is you know, it goes back to the ancient Greeks. It, it, even the word philosophy, Phia Sophia, means love of wisdom. Sophia means wisdom. And so in the early Christian days, there was all kinds of different groups that believed different things until they settled on an orthodoxy. And some of these early Christians believed unusual things. They, they, they're grouped together and called Gnostics. And some of these groups actually worship Sophia as the divine female creator, but also a counterpart to Jesus, the female counterpart to Jesus. So, so Christ was conceived as having a male aspect, which is the, the Son of God, Jesus, and a female aspect, which is wisdom, Sophia. And she was venerated as the mother of the universe. So the Gnostics existed in the first century to the third century AD, something like that. And they called Sophia the mother of the universe. Remember, Asherah from 2000 BC was called the queen of heaven. Sophia is the mother of the universe. Asherah was the queen of heaven. And in Gnosticism, Sophia is the feminine aspect of God. She was the twin of Jesus. She was seen as the bride of Christ, which is something that modern Christians will call the church. But the early Christians, at least some of them, believed that it wasn't the church, but it was the feminine aspect of God, Sophia. And also that Sophia was the Holy Spirit in the Trinity. We saw that before with Shekinah. The Holy Spirit, the place where God dwells, the Spirit of God. And in the Nag Hammadi Library, which is a uh, kind of like the Dead Sea Scrolls, but they were found in, um, they were found in uh, Egypt. A whole bunch of early Christian and pre-Christian holy books that were found hidden. They talk about Sophia as having created the material world. Right? Just like the Demiurg. Sophia is responsible for the creation of the material world. And in the Bible, we have some evidence of this same context. In Proverbs, there's a quote in the ninth chapter that says wisdom. Now remember, wisdom is, is what Sophia means. So wisdom hath builded her house. She hath hewn out her seven pillars. This is what you hear in Proverbs. Sophia hath builded her house, hath hewn out her seven pillars. And those seven pillars is a reference to the, the seven planets that were known about in ancient times. Sophia builded the universe. That's what Proverbs says. Just like the, the Gnostics said that Sophia created the material world. So my daughter... completely from her imagination, from her unconscious somehow, whatever that means, 
came up with this idea of a fairy who is responsible for God. That makes God the demiurge in her, in her, in her world, in a world that's populated by emanations of this, of this divine spirit. She, she likes to think of them as fairies. You know, she paints this, this animistic picture for us with a demiurge creator. And who is she? She's the divine feminine. She's this character that's existed in our religious stories from the very beginning that our sort of modern world has managed to hide from us, you know, to hide from, from to remove from our modern traditions. And my daughter somehow knows this. She recognizes this. And she tells me a story about it from her imagination. And that brings me to my conclusion. It is sometimes said that children are more attuned to this, their spiritual natures than our adults. They're less programmed, less desensitized to the subtle feelings and intuitions that we've all learned to ignore. Is there something like this going on in the dream of Jordan Peterson's nephew, in the fantasy of my six-year-old daughter? What does this all mean? The more fanciful, mystical parts of me lean into this mystery. Is it possible that children exist more openly and closely with the unconscious? That their imaginations and dreams are filled with cryptic symbols, packed with meaning, of which they cannot yet understand? Is this all coincidence or something more? Is it coincidence that my daughter whose life experience to date has been limited to playgrounds, the ABCs, and cartoons, spontaneously describes an invisible spirit world, animism, Gnostic theology, and the divine feminine, all in one story. Is it coincidence that her creative fantasies immediately suggest a divine presence in the world? Does this fact tell us something about the origin of religion? Is religion the outgrowth of the collective fantasies of childhood? Are they creative elaborations of our dream and fantasy lives? Maybe, maybe not. But in order to pass judgment either way, we must contend with the source of these fantasies. We must ask, what exactly is the source of our dreams and fantasies? What exactly is the unconscious? If the unconscious is a purely biological phenomenon, perhaps related to creative thinking or the early programming of our neurology, then maybe we can disregard its wisdom as coincidence. Maybe. But if it is something more, something transpersonal as it seems to be, if it is the source of our thoughts, ideas, and epiphanies, if it speaks to us from within, then we write it off as a coincidence at our peril. Perhaps our safest bet is to make friends with it, to become like little children, as Jesus suggested we should. Perhaps we should all be listening more carefully to what we tell ourselves from within and consider more deeply just what the hell that voice is. Well, there you have it. 
That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.